Welcome to Thrive. We are so happy to have you here with us today. My name is Judah, if we have not met yet, and I'm the lead pastor here at Thrive. We welcome you as we start a new series, Science and the Bible. And I've been nervous about this series, to be honest, because this has got some, so, you know, a lot of research, a lot of tough topics, but I am excited to jump in to this, uh, this week, Science and the Bible. And, and the reason why you know, I've been a little bit nervous is that there's this tension in the world between science and the Bible, right? Maybe you've seen this. Uh, there's a tension between faith and science, and this tension uh, can, can kind of put you at odds with other people. There's a tension between what is faith and what is fake, or, or what is belief and what is reality, and it seems for many that the two cannot be combine, that you either believe in one or the other. And unfortunately, many Christians, many people who are uh, consider themselves followers of Jesus Christ, end up getting the stigma of being naive for the way that they believe. You know, I believe that, that faith is not a crutch, but yet so many people kind of put that label, say, well, well your, your faith is a, is a crutch. And they say things like, God's word is outdated. It was written before we fully understood science, so, so how can God's word still remain true, and how can it still remain uh, relevant even in this world that we live? Is it possible to bring these two sides together, the faith and the science, the Bible, the scripture, and science? See, science, interestingly enough, is simply this. It's in your notes. Science is simply a systematic pursuit of evidence. That's really all that science is. It's systematically pursuing evidence through the scientific method. But for many people, they believe that, that it's in direct odds with faith and, and religion. See, the problem is, is that, that many people, they don't pursue science in this way. In fact, for us, I believe that we also need to pursue God's word this way. See, when we pursue science with an agenda, rather than to pursue truth, we end up going astray. But in the same way, when we pursue the Bible with an agenda, we also end up going astray. It's important for us to go to Scripture or go to the natural world to uncover what is true. See, the thing that's troubling in the world that we live is when, say, what happens when an atheist becomes a scientist? If an atheist has already determined inside that there is no God, will they allow the evidence that they discover, will they allow that to change their mind? In some cases, yes, they do. But in many cases, they don't allow it to change their mind because of a preconceived idea filters the results of the data that they get and they interpret things in a different way altogether. And then they ask different questions and they come up with different conclusions based on, not on science, but on a lack of faith in God. In fact, it is faith, it's faith that there is no God. See, the same disciplines that people use to study this world, though, should also be used as we study scripture. The scientific method is basically this. It's observation, then research, coming up with a, with a hypothesis, which then you make experiments and you test things, you analyze the results, and then ultimately you report 
on your findings. Whether we are investigating the known world or whether we are investigating scripture, these are the steps with which we should take. Observation, research, hypothesis, experimenting, analyzing, and then reporting. See, not to simply prove a point, and yet that's what our world seems bent on doing on both sides of the equation, just wanting to to prove a point, and we stop short on the testing and the experimentation because if the experiment yields a result that I don't agree with, then I don't change my opinion, but I go back and I try a different test because I want to get to the result that I want to get to. And they retest and they reframe until they get a result that they want and they can interpret things the way that they want. This is the problem in many cases with the scientific method. You know, a statement that we've heard many times, especially over the last couple of years, is don't question the science. And yet, and yet, don't question the science is the most unscientific statement known to man. Because, see, science in its purest form, is simply questioning things. And if we can't question things, then we're not practicing science. We're practicing dogma instead. See, and that's the problem that we find ourselves in, is if we can't question things, then where do we end up? See, science is all about questioning. See, anything, anything, whether it's science or whether it's God's word, anything that cannot stand up to scrutiny is not worth basing your faith on. If you cannot scrutinize it, then it's not solid and it's not worthy of our trust. Whether it's scientific writings of someone who claims that there is no God, which cannot be proven, or whether it's scientific writings or lectures claiming that there is no afterlife, how exactly did you perform those experiments? Like, like what data did you compile in this research that allows you to lecture a classroom of college students and say there is no afterlife? Tell me, how did you prove that point? See, and yet, it's because we go with a dogmatic perspective and trying simply to prove and validate the uh, preconceived idea that we already had. Now, the same can be said of Scripture. I see many people do the same thing with Scripture. They have something in their life that they want to prove or, or justify or do. And, and so instead of going to God's word to extract the meaning from God's word, they go to the God's word in order to prove a point. And they, and they overlook and they read between lines in order to get to the conclusion that they already had before they began their investigation. It's bewildering how many young, impressionable minds have lost their faith because a professor with an atheistic agenda, spoke authoritatively about something that they had absolutely no evidence on. But yet they speak authoritatively, and so us, with our young, impressionable minds, we're like, wow, maybe you're right. Maybe the Bible does not have any validity after all. Maybe I am stupid for believing that there is a God who created the universe. Oh, maybe, maybe you're right because you have the degree and I don't. And so we listen because they're speaking with a tone that sounds authoritatively, but we are Supposed to be people who question, who prove all things and hold fast to that which is true. Now, the truth of it is, is many of these scientists cannot even answer the basic questions of how life even began. Ask them, where did that come from? And ultimately we find that they don't know, and yet they speak authoritatively on this. Now, on the other hand, on the other hand, Christians can be uh, just as bad. You know, there, there's a, a saying that I grew up hearing, and it goes something like this. God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Anybody ever heard that before? 
A, a couple of you guys, you know, you can go on Amazon right now and buy a mug that says that. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. First off, let's, let's clarify a few things. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Just because you believe it doesn't settle anything, okay? Like, you can believe anything you want, and that does not settle anything for anybody. So, so that statement is already false. The other problem is, is God said it, that settles it. Well, I believe that to be true, but for someone who does not believe in, the, in God or in the authority of Scripture, that becomes problematic as well. So we need to look. What, what happens if you don't believe what God said? This is where we go to God's Word, why we look at Scripture. And that's what we're going to look at today, is we're going to look at Scripture See, many people say that you can't believe Scripture, you can't believe the authority of God's Word, you can't believe the authority of the Bible because it's written by men, right? Because it's written by men. Like, who else is going to write this? But, but they say, well, you can't believe it because it's written by men. See, here's the thing that I know and believe in your notes, if you're taking them. It's impossible for men to write Scripture without divine inspiration, it's impossible for them to write scripture without divine inspiration. See, even now to this very day, we are still just beginning to understand the wisdom that is contained within the Holy Bible, the written word of God that each of us has probably dozens of copies, if not uh, physical, at least on our you know, communication devices. We have it there and we're still beginning to understand the wisdom there. Albert Einstein, he called Galileo the father of modern science. Galileo, surely you've heard of Galileo. The father of modern science, but he was a man of faith. Do you know why he pursued science? Because he believed that he was revealing God's work by showing the true nature of the universe. He figured the deeper that he dug, the more he could understand and explain, then the more people would understand and grasp who God was, who the creator of the universe really is. So, can we trust the Bible? Can we trust the Bible? Some of us grew up in Sunday school singing songs like the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Bible, anybody sing that or just me? Okay, a couple of you guys sang that song. You know, and we sing songs like that, but, but how do we know it's true? If we can't trust it, then it's worthless. If we can't trust it, then it's meaningless. See, so here's a few things. Some of you have heard this before. Some of you may not have, but, but the Bible is not a book, okay? Let, let's be very clear. The Bible is not a book, but it's a collection of books. And it's broken down actually into two collections. First we have the Old Testament, and then we have the New Testament. The dividing line of the Old Testament and the New Testament is the Old Testament was before Jesus came on the scene, and then the New Testament is after Jesus came on the scene. And when Jesus came on the scene, man, things began to change in an amazing way. So it's a collection of books, 66 books to be exact, 39 books in the Old Testament, and 27 books in the New Testament. 611,000 words all compiled together, and not one a significant contradiction. Now, this book was written over a period of 1,400 years, 1,400 years, over 13 continents, uh, I'm sorry, over 13 countries on three different continents in three different languages. Over 40 different authors 
penned the scriptures that we know and read today. And these were not all similar people. We had kings writing things. We had shepherds writing things. We had fishermen and doctors who were all writing things. And it all comes together in unity without a substantial contradiction. Now, if you go and you Google uh, contradictions in the Bible, invariably you'll find some. And it's ironic that, that all of them are things like, well, in the Old Testament it says this, and in the New Testament it says that. It's like, yeah, duh. Because Jesus came and changed everything. It says that he came and fulfilled the law and the prophets. So, of course, it's going to be a little bit different from the old versus the new. But the old contract spells out the original relationship that we had with God, whereas the new contract tells us where we stand now because of the salvation that Jesus Christ brought to us. Now, there is no way that you could gather this many people across centuries and languages and have them tell a unified, cohesive story, a story of faith and a story of hope, a story of forgiveness and ultimately a story of salvation which leads to the introduction of a hero. There was no self-serving motivation for writing this. Many religious texts that you read, they're very self-motivated. In other words, the person who is founding the religion always paints themselves in a very pristine light. They're always exalting themselves amongst, above everyone else. However, when you read scripture, it becomes painfully clear very early on that all the characters in the gospel and in the Bible are not painted as heroes, but they're painted as flawed individuals needing salvation. And we see people like Abraham, Father Abraham had many sons, and we see the jacked up life that he had. We see Moses and all the many mistakes that he made. We see people like David and how uh, messed up their lives were. See, these were not the prime people. They were not the, the uh, role models for everyone to follow. They were people that were like you and, and like me. And we see all these broken, messed up people until we come to the New Testament, and we see one singular character who stands out above all the uh, above all, all the rest, and that's Jesus Christ, who came and lived a sinless life, who came and died for our sins on the cross, and was risen to life again to bring us salvation and forgiveness. But everyone else shows how jacked up and messed up they are. The Bible is the most vetted book in the world. It's the most criticized book. It's the most examined book in the world. And it's also the most sold book in the world. You probably realize that. It's in the Guinness Book of World Records for the most amount of copies ever sold. at 6 billion copies that have been sold. That on average, every single year, around 100 million copies of the Bible are sold. Nobody bothers to put this on the New York Times bestseller because they know that it's going to dominate every top contender by, by multiple factors. It sold 100 million copies every year, which is 274,000 copies a day, which if you do the math, it turns out to three copies every single second. They're being sold like that. That's how many Bibles are being sold across the world. See, it's constantly under attack by quote-unquote scholars who, unlike them, God's word will last. In your notes, if you're taking them, God's word will always stand the test of time. See, God's word was here before the scholars and the professors were even born. And guess what? It's going to be here long after they're gone. See, God's word stands the test of time, and it has brought 
healing and restoration and salvation and forgiveness to millions who will follow the teachings therein. Now we say, how, how reliable and how accurate can this book really be? I mean, isn't, aren't there all these other manuscripts? How do we know that it's accurate? Well, let's look at some other ancient books. And I've mentioned some of this before, but, but to refresh your memory, Julius Caesar wrote a book called The Gallic Wars. Nobody critiques this. Nobody doubts the authenticity of Julius Caesar's book, Gallic Wars. No one questions it. It was written at 50 B.C., 50 years before Christ, and there's only 12 copies in existence. And the oldest copy that we have was a copy from 900 years after the original had been written. And yet nobody questions the validity, the veracity of this book. Homer's Iliad, one that some of you may have read, was written at 762 B.C. Now, instead of only a handful of manuscripts, there's 1,900 manuscripts. So you can imagine now that we can have a very accurate version of this. 1,900 manuscripts, and the oldest was only from 350 years after the original was written. So we say, we, nobody questions that. Nobody says, oh, I wonder if this is the real thing. Uh, we don't know. Well, no, we all agree. Hey, there's enough evidence that tells us that this is accurate. This is legitimate. The Bible, on the other hand, the New Testament, for example, is the most preserved book in human history. There's not 1,900 manuscripts. There's over 25,000 manuscripts in existence, many of which were only from a few years after the original writing, and they've all been categorized and cataloged and gone through with a fine-tooth comb to make sure the validity and the accuracy of the Scripture that we read. All throughout history, though, people have wrongly blamed the Bible for ignorance. We see that in the world that we, have, we live in now. They, they imply that if you believe in the Bible that you're unscientific, that, that maybe you're less than. They, they, they put intelligent and logic at odds with faith. They, they, they say, like, oh, you can't have both. It's either one or the other. In fact, when we were in school... Many of us were taught that faith gets in the way of science. The reality is, is science also requires a certain amount of faith. See, many people were taught, as I was taught, that, that the, it was religious nuts that were trying to declare for hundreds of years that the earth was flat. And, and that's, that's not true at all. In fact, if we look in, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, it says, God sits above the circle of the earth. Now that word is translated circle here, but if you look at the original Hebrew word, that word literally means sphere, okay? It says God sits above the circle or the sphere of the earth. The people below seem like grasshoppers to him. He spreads out the heavens like a curtain and makes his tent from them. See, not only does the, the Bible describe the shape of the earth, but also he describes what holds it up. See, we know now that the earth is suspended in space. See, we have the capabilities to observe that now. We have rocket ships that can go up, and we can go out, and we can look at this and say, wow, yeah, you know what? It is suspended by nothing. Now, some of you still may believe that the earth is flat, but let me tell you, I don't think it is, okay? Um, but the earth is suspended in space. We have the capability of seeing this. But throughout history, why would anyone think that? Like, why would anyone think that the earth is suspended by nothing? Like, like that kind of makes no sense, you know, in, in, our, in our human minds. In fact, the Egyptians, the ancient Egyptians believed that the earth was flat and it rested on 
five pillars uh, that would hold this thing up. So that's what the Egyptians believed. It was five pillars that held up this flat earth. The Greeks, who were more advanced than the Egyptians, they believed a more scientific method that the earth was being held on the back of the giant atlas. So Atlas was carrying this, and Atlas is obviously where we get the book of maps that some of you have never seen because you've only used a GPS before. But this giant was supposedly holding up the earth. Well, the Hindus, on the other hand, they believed that the earth was on the back of elephants. And when the elephants would move around, that's what would cause the earthquakes. So somebody asked them, well, what are the elephants standing on? Well, a giant tortoise, of course. So, so they're like, it's the elephants on a giant tortoise. Okay, well, but what about, what about the tortoise? What's the giant tortoise standing on? They say, well, the giant tortoise is standing on a giant coiled snake. Okay, well, what's the giant coiled snake on? It's just floating on a great cosmic sea. I mean, this was the, the greatest scientific minds of the ancient world. This was what many people believed to be true because they didn't have any way of testing or knowing anything otherwise. And as absurd as it seems to us now, if we were raised in that civilization, we would think, oh, yeah, that seems reasonable, tortoises and snakes in a giant sea. (laughs) However, if you look at the book of Job, which is the oldest book in the Bible, Job chapter 26, verse 7, it says, God stretches the northern sky over empty space and hangs the earth on what? On nothing. He wraps the rain in his thick clouds. And the clouds don't burst with the weight. You ever thought about that before? How much a cloud weighs? I've talked about this in church a time or two. But that, that, these are like the thoughts that go through my mind. How much does a cloud weigh? So I started researching. I started digging. I'm like, how much does a cloud weigh? Do you know what the average cumulus cloud weighs? 1.1 million pounds. That's how much the average cumulus, now this is not even a thunderstorm. This is just the average nice fluffy cloud floating through the sky, 1.1 million pounds. This is 137,000 gallons of water flying over your head. It could fill up seven swimming pools. In fact, if you ever get rain, you know how they say, oh, we're going to uh, get an inch an hour, right? You're like, oh, an inch an hour, okay, you know, an inch an hour. If you get it one inch of rain and you live on a one-acre piece of land, do you know how much one inch of rain on an acre of land is? It's 27,000 gallons, or 108 tons, is falling on one acre of land that would basically overfill most average swimming pools. Like, this is amazing. This is just flying over our heads. God's like, I need to figure out a way to irrigate the world. Let's fly it over everyone's head. (laughs) It wasn't until 1580 that people actually decided to, to investigate and write down what we now know of as the water cycle. The water cycle is, of course, the evaporation of water into the air. And then, you know, the, the whole process that it, you know, goes and it condenses and it comes down to rain. But see, the thing that this all proves is that, and you know, it's true science is not in opposition to God's word. See, true science is not in opposition to God's word. Because here, back in Job again, what do we see in Job again? Job 36, verse 27. He draws up the water vapor and then distills it into rain. And the rain pours down from the clouds, and everyone benefits. It's just a simple verse. Many of us may read over that and not even think twice about it. And yet, here we are, thousands of years before it was discovered by Bernard Palissy in 1580, God's word already was telling us how the irrigation of the world works. 
So how many, can, how many centuries did this verse confuse people? People are reading this. He draws up the water vapor. Like, what water vapor? Like, what is water vapor? Like, I don't know what water vapor is. For hundreds and thousands of years, people read this verse with no comprehension of what it was. Hippocrates and Ptolemy, they viewed and cataloged all of the stars. Did you know that? They cataloged all the stars, and they made a map showing where all the stars are, all 1,022 of them. That's how many stars they counted. You know, they, they made a book saying this is all the stars that we can, we can see and we can count. And yet in Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 22, it says this. And as the stars of the sky cannot be counted, and the sand on the seashore cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of my servant David and the Levites who minister before me. You know, just this past weekend, my family and I, we spent a couple of days in in Nantucket, and, uh, and it's beautiful there. In fact, they say it's one of the best places on the East Coast to look at the night sky. And We'd go out to the beach at night and look up, and, and you could see, you know, uh, millions of stars, and you could see the Milky Way, and you see shooting stars, and, and we were talking about it and, and trying to say, like, what is harder to count here? Is it harder to count all the stars in the sky or all the sand on the sea that we're standing on? And here it says that it can't be counted. You know how many uh, stars they estimate there are now that in our, you know, in our whole you know, universe? Not 1,022. They estimate it's 200 billion trillion stars. So if you take a trillion, 200 billion times, that's how many. Or 200 sextillion stars, that's how many they estimate. They can't even count them because God's word says it's innumerable. We cannot count the amount of stars in the heaven. And yet we say, well, you know, science and the Bible, you can't, you can't believe both. Another thing that was an ancient practice for, for a long time was, uh, was bloodletting. You know what bloodletting is, right? You get sick and they'd cut you and drain out blood because they're like, oh, we got to get the bad blood out of you. You know, I don't know if that's where the phrase came from, bad blood, but I don't know. But they would drain the blood out of you in order to hopefully rejuvenate good blood. I don't know exactly but one of the, the, the major fans of this was George Washington. Uh, maybe you know this, but he was very sick. And in the last day of his life, they drained out over 80 ounces of his blood. And many people believe that that contributed to his ultimate demise. And yet in Leviticus, we see it say that, the, that life and death is in the power of the blood. And you go to a doctor now, and we think nothing of it, how they draw a vial of blood out of our body, and they examine it. And by just looking at the blood, they can tell how healthy you are, how unhealthy you are. And some people, they get sick, and they need to give them more blood because they need them to be, they need them to be healthy. You know, the thing that I, I wonder is, is why, why are they continually updating science books? Like, why are they continually updating them? Like, like, you know, if you go to school now and you see the science book, it's not the same science book that you had when you were a kid. It's different now. Like, like, like they, you can't use the old ones anymore. Why? Because there's new discoveries that have been made that have made the old, uh, old ones obsolete. In fact, you know, if you grew up in the, in the 90s, you know, I grew up in the 90s, here are some things that we believed in the 90s that we know not to be true anymore. One is that dinosaurs were, were very, you know, earth tone and had scales. Now, you know what they tell us? They, got fe- they had feathers. Like, who would have known, you know? Like, they got feathers now. They, they also, we also believed in the 1990s that bats were blind, right? And now we say, no, no, bats aren't blind. They still use echolocation to find their food, but no, they can see just fine. The other thing is that, have you ever heard of the dark side of the moon, right? They said, oh, there's a dark side of the moon. And even Pink Floyd, I think, verified this. Um, but, but they said there's a dark side of the moon. In fact, they've proven there is no dark side of the moon. There's only a side of the moon that we cannot see. 
We can't see it because of the gravity and the rotation and all that stuff. But every part of the moon gets sunlight. We just can't observe it. So it's like, so we, we believed this back then, but now we're like, oh, no. And then, and then, you know, this other thing, too, about Pluto not being a planet. Like, I don't know. I'm not even going there with a the Pluto thing. How about coffee? Scientists can't even tell you if coffee is good or bad for you, right? I believe it's good for you personally, but, I mean, John Hopkins, they say, if you drink enough coffee, it'll make you live longer. And yet the Mayo Clinic says if you drink too much coffee, it's going to cause an early death. Like, like who, is, who is right here? Who's right? And it seems like, like science books are, are updated just as soon as they're printed. This doesn't mean that science is invalid. No, it's as we make new discoveries, it unveils new things to us. And yet, here's the irony, is that the Bible has not been updated, and we are still discovering the truths that are in it. We're not coming up to a new revision. This is the same scripture that we've had for hundreds and hundreds of years. So this is a very valid statement in your notes. Science is always changing, but God's word stays the same. God's word is unchanging. In Isaiah 40, verse 8, it says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. God's word stands forever. Now let me be very clear. The Bible is not a science book. That was never its intent or its purpose. It's more of history and poetry and guidance and instruction. However, that being said, in your notes, the Bible is more scientifically accurate than any other ancient document. There's no other ancient document that we've discovered that is more scientifically accurate than the Bible that we have with us. So why does this matter? Like, why does this matter? Here we're talking about, you know, science and the Bible. Why does this matter? Because many of us base our lives, our health, and our beliefs on scientific advances. You know, by, by the medications that we take, by the care that we, uh, we, we go through, the treatments that we go through, the food that we eat, we base that on science. And we need to realize that it's not in opposition to God's word. Like, you can embrace both of these. But also, here's the reason why we need to know this is true. Because how can we base our eternal soul on a book that is inaccurate? See, God's word is alive and powerful, as it says in Hebrews 4. Verse 12 through 13. It says, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he is the one to whom we are accountable. Final thing in your notes is only the Bible has the power to change your life. Only the Bible is full of that living power and that can change your life. And nothing is hidden from God. He sees you and he knows you. And it says that God's word is like a two-edged sword. I always visualize that as a scalpel. That God's word is like a scalpel that can perform surgery on your spirit and on your soul. And just as a medical journal may describe how your body may be restored, only God's word can bring that healing and transformation to your soul and to your spirit and to your mind. See, every word of God proves true. And our God is not a God who can be disproved. He's not a God who sits idly by. He's not a God who cowers at questioning. He's not a God who's afraid of us questioning him and asking him questions. This is not a God also who demands a blind faith. 
Some of you say, well, you just got to blindly accept what's ever in the Bible. No, God can handle your questions. He can handle the questions that you have. He's not asking us to simply blindly go along. And although he does not need to prove himself, he is a God who has proven himself time and time again. Proven himself that he is an architect, that he is an engineer, that he is an artist, that he is a physician, that he is a provider, and that he is our Lord. And every word can be trusted, depend on, relied upon for our salvation and for us to grow closer to him, our God and our creator. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come to you now in Jesus' name. And we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word which teaches us. We thank you for your word which inspires us. We believe that every word is true. And that we don't have to just pick one thing or the other, not logic or faith. No, we can embrace them both because you are the God of logic. You're the God of science, the God of mathematics, the God of engineering. We put our trust and our faith in you and you alone. We thank you that not only do you know every star in the sky, but you know me. You know each and every one of us. And you've invited us into your family. If you're here today and you realize that you are not a part of God's family, please don't let another day go by. He's inviting you now into his family. He wants you in his family. He loves you. He's drawn you here by his Holy Spirit, because he wants a relationship with you. Scripture says that if you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, you say with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord, that you'll be saved. Wherever you are, whatever you're going through right now, I would invite you to to call on his name now, to say, Jesus, you are my Lord, and I put my trust in you. I put my trust in you. Not blindly, I put my trust in you because you are the firm foundation. You're the rock on which I stand. God, we thank you that you are our firm foundation, that all your words are true, that your promises are true, that you've never abandoned us, you've never forsaken us, that you've given us wisdom, that you've created this amazing clockwork of a universe for our enjoyment lord we thank you for your goodness for your mercy let us trust you more let us stand up for you more and we put our faith and trust in you knowing that you are good that you are faithful that you are powerful and that you have created for each of us a way that we can be made right with you there's no other book on the face of this earth that can give us the solution for the sin that is in our life, and only you can take that away. So we thank you for that. We thank you for your mercy, your grace, your forgiveness, your help, your healing, your provision. You are our God, and we put our trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.